One of life's greatest questions is what happens to us after we die? Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to first-hand accounts of people who have gone beyond the veil and return to talk about it. We are on the line today with Rosemary Thornton. Rosemary, how are you? I'm well. How about you? I'm doing very well. It's a beautiful day here. Tell us a little bit about you before we get into your NDE. Well, I've been a writer for, gosh, pushing 35 years. I've written 10 books now. Nine of my books were focused primarily on architectural history. So going from writing about old houses to writing about my trip to heaven was kind of a different genre for me. But yeah, I've been a writer for a long time. I've written for magazines, newspapers, websites. I wrote ad copy for a while. That was especially dark period of my writing career. There's only so many adjectives in the world. So <laughs> I've written just about everything there is to write. You know, when you're a writer and you're self-employed, your motto is pretty much anything for a buck. And that's, <laughs> that's how writers live. So yeah, I've been a writer. And so having this experience, uh, gave me a whole new topic to write about. And, you know, I write about history. Writing about my very private personal experience was pretty challenging at times. I'll bet it would be. And I'm trying not to take that, what you just said too personally. I happen to be in the advertising business. So, <laughs> okay. Before we get into your story, go ahead and tell listeners the name of your book in case they want to read more about it. The name of the book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And my website is temporarydeath.com. In fact, chapter one is available at the website if anyone wants to preview the book before they commit to buying it. Great. So, Rosemary, why don't you just give us an idea of what led up to your near-death experience? Well, in 2016, spring of 2016, my husband of 10 years came home for lunch and ended his life. And to say it was devastating is just a, a, a small statement. I, it was ruinous to me. I mean, I've already always been a sensitive soul and I married him in my forties. I felt like I'd spent my whole life trying to find this man and I did find him. So it, it took me down to a very dark place very quickly. And 29 months after this, I was diagnosed with stage two cancer. And I thought, wow, you know, I'd been literally been asking God every night to let me die and I thought it was pretty clear in my prayers, you know, let's do it quick, not some lingering, horrible disease. So it was actually a surgery related to the, the diagnosis that led to me uh, bleeding to death. They made a surgical boo-boo. And then they sent me home, even though I told them while I was in recovery, because it, it was a biopsy that started all this. It was a biopsy to determine how far this cancer had spread, where all it was. And uh, after awakening from this procedure, I told him, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding a lot. Three times I told the attending RN this, and three times she said, oh, why don't you get home and lie down? You'll feel just fine. I was like, oh, I'm 58. I'm pretty sure that there's nothing about this that's okay. But I didn't have a lot of experience with the medical world, so I went home and I laid down. And once I got home, I realized I was bleeding out, and I was taken by ambulance. Uh, gosh, I don't think I was home an hour. And, you know, during that hour, I was standing in my shower trying to figure out what am I going to do? And I thought, you know, for 29 months, I had been fighting. And, oh, I mean, a Herculean effort to not end my own life. And I thought, you know, I thought about a Bible verse. Somebody had read me, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which said, God will show you a way out. 
And I'm standing in that shower in my home bleeding so much. And I thought, you know, maybe this is my way out. And I can't describe how immensely comforting that was to think I had my, I had my way and I wasn't doing it to myself. In fact, it was a, I had sought out medical treatment. So standing in that shower, I realized all I have to do is sit down and this is over. And it was very tempting but I thought about the two people in the in my living room there who had been so attentive and so showed me so much love. And I thought, is that really fair to them to have them come in this bathroom in a few minutes and see me splayed out on the floor a mess? So I did not sit down in that shower. I went out into my own living room and I said, call 911. I'm bleeding to death. And I was taken to a little standalone ER. And I mean, it was an ER, but it was not physically connected to a hospital. And there they made some more mistakes. And I was on a gurney there and I'd been taken there by ambulance and I was on a gurney and this RN about my age, um, I grabbed her hand and I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And the thing about it is I thought, you know, we've come this far, let's, let's do this, you know? And she was very solicitous, and she literally leaned over and very tenderly said, oh, honey, we're not going to let you die. We have many solutions for this. And I was comforted by that because she seemed very confident. And then they gave me a shot of Dilaudid, which is a morphine derivative. And by now, I'd lost quite a bit of blood. And uh, I don't know if it was the Dilaudid or the blood loss, but uh, it came very close to my last words on earth being, wow, that's some really good stuff. And uh, <laughs> I lost consciousness. And the next thing I remember, I was being catapulted out of my body. And I mean catapulted. Very dramatic. Extreme. I can't begin to describe how dramatic it felt. And I was floating away from my body. And a lot of people said, oh, did you see your body? Did you see your body? I did not. And I really think that that's God's grace and mercy because uh, my friend, again, my friend had gone with me to the hospital after um, he had seen me, actually, after I lost consciousness, the, the doctor and the nurse stepped out of the room, which I was kind of incredible. I mean, here I'm presenting as somebody who's bleeding out and they hooked me up to a blood pressure cuff, a pulse ox monitor, and they step out of the room. So anyway, they left me there with my friend my friend said at one point he looked over and this is while I'm still, you know, of this earth. My blood pressure was at 32 over 25. So I'm on my way. And he said at one point about actually about that moment when my blood pressure was so catastrophically low, he said, your eyes popped open. And he said, you looked up and you, you tried to sit up on the gurney. And he said, you couldn't get your, your body up, but you, you reached your arms up to heaven. You put your shoulders up. And he said, you reached up and even wiggled your fingers like a child who's, who's reaching up for a parent to pick them up. And he said, you talked to somebody who, that only you could see. And he said, and after that, you flopped back on the gurney. And he said, and then your blood pressure, the reading was error, which meant it was lower than 32 over 25. And he said, and that's when um, the blood pressure alarm went off. And a nurse came running down the hallway and they, that's kind of fun. He said they fiddled with a blood pressure cuff and even the wall outlet <laughs> tried to figure out something's going better wrong. Um, but yeah, like I said, during that time, I was having the time of my life. So I'm floating away in this blackness and I, real, I realized instantly exactly what had happened. I knew I was dying. My first words out of my mouth in this new experience were, as I'm floating away in this blackness, my heart has stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? 
I thought, I don't know, but I know that's right. And I'm floating further and further away. And I had so many thoughts. And one of them was, uh, you're dying. And then being the, you know, the longtime writer, I thought, actually, you're not dying, you're dead. Because when you're going on to your reward, correcting your tense is the most important thing. So, and, you know, I, I rejoiced in the fact that every single thing I am had made this transition, even down to my goofball sense of humor. And that comment that you're not dying, you're dead, it cracked me up because, you know, I'm my best audience. And I laughed out loud and I heard myself laugh and I giggled and I thought, you know, even my giggle is the same. And then I thought, I don't have breath sounds. Pretty sure I don't have lungs. Pretty sure I don't have vocal cords. I don't have any of the mechanisms by which people, by which we believe people produce and create sound. And I thought, and yet here I am. Here I am in this new experience. I'm creating sound. I'm hearing sound. And somebody said, oh, you were probably talking telepathically. No, no, no. I was no more talking telepathically than I am right now. You know, I've lived alone for a time. I had a cute little dog and I've had a lot of conversations with that dog. So yes, I was very much, very much talking to myself and talking out loud. So I was so comforted by this information that everything I am had made the transition, even down to my funny little giggle. And it wasn't very far into this experience that I felt a massive physical presence to my left much taller than me. And I'm still floating in this perfect blackness. And something about this blackness, it was like being infused with the most perfect peace. I know a lot of people talk about the love and I've, I felt loved, but I just felt this peace. It was like I was actively just being infused with peace. And it was, it was like being washed in it, bathed in it. It was so magnificent. And I even remember thinking at some point, because I, was, I felt like I was having a couple dozen thoughts in every direction. You know, I've often used the analogy. I've got a background in ham radio. I often use the analogy. It felt like my whole life I've been living at 60 amps intellectually, and now I was experiencing 100,000 amps. It was a significant difference in my ability, in my intellectual horsepower, my ability to process thought and have thoughts. And I really felt like I was having thoughts in so many directions. Well, one of them was the presence of this massive spiritual being. And I, I turned my head to my left, still floating, turned my head to the left and I looked up and behind me, slightly behind me. And I thought, this is pretty interesting. I'm looking over my left shoulder, you know, so I have some sort of human-esque form for sure. Even though I left that, you know, slightly used body on the gurney, I very much have am having an experience in what feels like something approaching a, a human form. So I I asked this massive being with you know and I'm, I'm just so you know the predominant emotion I had was gratitude. My whole life I've tried to have a daily habit of making a gratitude list of five things for which I'm grateful. And throughout this experience, I kept thinking I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I didn't do this to myself. I'm out. I'm free. I'm clear. I've told many people it really felt like an early release for good behavior. My life had been hard, 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 hard. And my husband's suicide just felt like the last straw. So I asked this massive spiritual being who has joined me, I said, and who are you? <laughs> Pretty much just like that. And the answer, again, before I could even get the words out, the answer was immediate. You, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. Tell me a little bit about this being that you experienced. You know, that's interesting. A lot of people ask me about 
who it was I saw, but I was still in this perfect pitch black darkness. And, and darkness is the wrong word, blackness. And again, it seemed like the blackness itself was just so full of peace. But he, he she, I, and, and a lot of people was asked, you know, what was the gender? And I would say that he, she was both feminine and masculine, had qualities of both, was very, uh, I don't know, just all, <laughs> was all. That's, that's a can say. Uh, very tall. I had an awareness of, of great stature. And the question that I asked was, and who are you? And I was, you know, really literally asked that with a lilt in my voice because I thought this is pretty cool. This is great, actually. I, I just cannot describe how grateful I was that this earth experience was over. But before I could even get the question out, and who are you? The answer was immediate. And the answer was, you, Rosemary, are the image and likeness. I'm the original. And I thought that's Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And throughout my life, I've studied the Bible. That had always been a favorite Bible verse, even though I couldn't really wrap my mind around exactly what it meant. But I thought, that's pretty cool, the original. And I, I mean, we hear about that we're made in the image and likeness of God, but I'd never heard it put in that, in that way, that there is an original and I'm the image and likeness. It's just, it was fantastic. And I was still in awe. And I mean, in awe. We use that word awesome a lot. This was an awesome moment. I was still very much in awe of that and, and thinking about that. And these experiences came so quickly and so fast. And there were so many of them. And within this blackness, as I'm floating, I thought about the peace. And I remember thinking, all my life as a writer, I've suffered with anxiety and stress and worrying, worrying way too much, ruminating, being afraid. And I thought, all my life, I've wondered what I would look like with none of that if I had no anxiety and no fear, no worries and no woes. And I thought, this is great. This is what life looks like if you can be 100% fearless. And I thought, this is fantastic. It was so liberating. And I even had the thought, what exactly did I leave behind on that gurney? And I thought, everything negative. I left behind the fears and the worries and the memories and the sadness. And, you know, the other interesting facet of this is I remember thinking, I don't have to worry about that chemo and radiation now. I'm, I'm free and clear. I'm done. I'm out. This is solve that problem. And I remembered my husband. I remembered thinking, I didn't, I didn't kill myself. I didn't, I didn't do to, to my kids what he had done. I, I had been, we'd all been spared that. And, and yet that remembrance of how I got to this place was not a sad one. It was just a fact, like, you know, the grass is green, the sky is blue. And it was like that whole thing had been disconnected from the incredible emotional pain and guilt and sadness. So while I'm still floating away, so many things are happening and, and they're all very pleasant. And I, I just was so grateful it was over. And, you know, the other funny thought I had, I was just telling somebody about this the other day. I remember very distinctly thinking my whole life being an over-anxious, neurotic writer, I've wondered, what's going to take me out? How am I going to die? How does this end? And I, I thought, I wish I'd known that it was just going to be that I felt a little tired from blood loss and I closed my eyes and they give me a shot and it's over. I wish I'd known that my death would be so, 
so simple, so painless, really. I mean, I had a lot of anxiety about this diagnosis. I had never had a surgery before. So I had tremendous anxiety about this surgery, but it was over. And I remember thinking all my life, I worried about that. And then I literally thought to myself, one less thing to worry about, scratch it off the list, it's done. And I also thought about, I just thought about so many things. I thought about the Bible verse, the the Paul in Corinthians, I think it's Corinthians, he talks about the perfect peace that passeth all understanding. And I thought, this is that peace. And, you know, there's a belief or there's an understanding, I guess, that Paul had a near-death experience. He talks about in the Bible, there was a man, whether in the body or in the flesh or out of the flesh, I do not know. That's the preface to it. But they believe that that was actually Paul talking about himself and that he did have an experience possibly when he was thrown out of the city, where he died and came back to life. So I thought, this is that peace that Paul was talking about, the perfect peace that you can't understand until you experience it. And this went on and on. And I mean, ever since Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, came out in the 70s, little trade paperback, I had been fascinated by NDEs. I mean, George Ritchie, uh, Raymond, uh, God, who was it? George Ritchie, uh, Betty Eadie, uh, God, I can't think of the guy's name, who, um, Brinkley, God, what was his first? Daniel Brinkley. I had read all those books over and over and over again. I was fascinated by NDEs throughout my, my time. And in this blackness, I had a realization that I had been in this experience before. And I mean, within this time span within this life. And I asked the angels because I felt a spiritual being, not the same one as before, but in this blackness, again, couldn't see her or him, but I felt the spiritual being with me. And I said, I've been here before. This is kind of like a do-over. I remember this. And I was told, I was told, you remember, your mom told you a story about as an infant, you were given up for dead. And the angel said, you, you came here then and you were sent back. So, and I thought, well, that explains so much about my life. And I remember thinking, that would have been good information to have back there on earth, but whatever, cool to know now. I, you know, so many people, um, as I, as you and I were talking before we went on here, my story has been heard by almost 13 million people. I get a lot of emails, see a lot of comments on YouTube. People, people will say, oh, you probably wanted to come back. You weren't ready to go. No, no, no. I have never never been more certain of anything in my life as I have about the fact I was so grateful it was over. I had zero desire to return. I had zero desire to, to return to this mess of a life. I, I just felt like it was grace. I felt it was like God's grace that I got out of this thing. So this experience went on for a time and and then the next thing I knew, I was no longer floating away in this blackness, but I was standing on something approximating two feet and two legs in a white room. And what's so frustrating, I mean, I've always thought of myself as something of a smart cookie. I tend to be very observant of my surroundings. I used to be a newspaper reporter for about three and a half years. And that's, that's a big learning curve on how to be observant and pay attention to a lot of stuff. I don't remember how I got to this white room. The last thing I remember is floating, and the next thing I know, I'm standing in a white room on my own feet. I wish I'd looked at my feet. But in this white room, uh, it was perfect white. You know, in the perfect paint, the perfect white color of paint, they put a little bit of blue. 
<laughs> which I find fascinating. So this white was just perfect white. And there were no lights. And I can't say that there were walls or ceiling or floor. It was just everything was white. It was just this presence of omnipresent white, I guess. And there was no lights. And yet the room was perfect. It was so brilliantly lit. And within this room, there was a mist, a heavy mist falling, like a fog. And at the far end of the room, maybe 15 to 20 feet in front of me, there was a door. And the door was shut. And I remember thinking, I, know, I knew what that door was. That was crossing the Rubicon. That was the, the line of delineation between this world and the next, you know, the, the point of no going back. I knew exactly what it was from all the accounts I had read about people who had had near-death experiences. And by the way, I don't like to call mine a near-death experience. Words matter. I call mine a temporary death experience. As it turned out, my heart was stopped for more than 10 minutes. I, I did die from bleeding to death. But so in this room, I'm looking at that door and I'm thinking, that door ought to be open. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be shut. And I was just a little puzzled by that. You know, there's an old, an old song and it's called Going Home and it's on YouTube, but it's uh, going home, going home, I'm just going home. And it talks about passing through an open door. And, and the point of the song is so easy. It talks about it just being a breath away. It's so easy just to slip from here to there. And I remember thinking, that door should be open. But anyway, I thought, I don't know if I have legs or feet or what, but I know I can, this is so funny. I thought I can perambulate with intention. <laughs> what do you mean by that? That I didn't know how the mechanism of movement worked in this new experience. But I knew if I had an intention to get to that door, that I okay. would. So I didn't know if I was walking. I, I didn't know, again, I just didn't know the means by which we moved. So I thought, I want to go through the door. I want to go through the door as fast as possible. And, and then I'm moving toward the door. And as I'm moving toward this door, this white mist is very, very much around me. And it's not just falling, like, you know, a heavy fog. It's actually dancing and swirling and moving all around me very energetically. And I asked this, again, I'm with a spiritual being. And again, I can't see, and this felt like a she, I can't feel her. I mean, I, I can't see her, but I can hear her very clearly. And I can feel I'm not alone in this heavy white mist. I felt like I should be able to focus on one of these individual droplets. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it seemed like I ought to be able to do that. And I tried. And I asked this spiritual being that was accompanying me, I asked her, I said, why can't I see, why can't I see that individual droplet? And she said, because your eyes have not acclimated to this new environment. She said, but what you're seeing are particles of light. And she said that whether we, when we go, when we go to heaven, we have to go through this room and we're cleansed by this, this, these particles of light, like a spiritual car wash. And that some people die with a, a disease process or a mental illness or a physical malady so heavily imprinted on their soul, they think it's part of their identity. And the point of this white room is to cleanse us from that, to remove any trace of the muck of earth from us. And I thought, wow. That is so fascinating. Almost like this, this white misty car wash kind of thing, but it goes clear through you. That's really cool. Yes. Uh, as a friend had said to me, she said, leave your muddy boots at the door. And I thought that was an 
excellent explanation of what this is about. And that, you know, it is, some people do get pretty tangled up in whatever disease process they're dealing with. And they start to think that it's part of their identity. And, and that's what was explained to me is this white room restores our innate spiritual purity. And it, it, it helps us remember who we really are. And, and I'm still thinking, okay, that's great. Out of my way, I'm doing the door. I mean, I was very enthusiastic about getting that door, getting to that door. I, I can't describe how grateful I was that this was all over. I just can't describe how grateful I was. My life in the 29 months after his death had been hell. He, um, he was, my husband was sophisticated, intelligent, educated, erudite, accomplished. We had lots of fancy friends in high places. We had quite a fancy lifestyle. And after his death, those people disappeared. And the people who came into the fray were the average folks of the world. And as I read on a quote, and I hope I can quote it precisely, but it's, when the worst happens, the people who have the tools rush in to save the people who are drowning. And that's what was happening to me. And the people who rushed in to save me were so impressive. And yet they had been on the periphery of my life. And one of the people was a woman named Tracy. And she and I had been buddies. I mean, she and I went out to lunch, I don't know, two or three times a year. And she found out, I mean, the word of my husband's suicide went far and wide. And she said she was driving when she heard that my husband had ended his life. And she said she pulled off on the side of the road and she started to cry. And she said, I thought to myself, Rosemary won't survive this. And that's what impelled her to come to come re-enter my life in a big way. And then I, I declined her offer to let me live in her home because I said, the woman you knew before, the author with the nine books, the woman who'd had a pretty good run of success and this niche topic is dead, Tracy. So you don't want me in your home. You don't want me in your life. Just let me be. And she found out that I had been spending more and more time sleeping in my car I mean, I was, I was on a bad path fast. And she said, you're going to come home with me one night. And that was absolutely inspired and brilliant because I couldn't commit to anything, but I could commit to one night. And so I slept in her house one night and she said, now that worked out pretty well. You're going to sleep a second night. And I did a second night. And in this time, in this time, I had lost the ability to swallow food. I was living off liquid nutrition drinks. I was dropping weight very quickly. I lost about 35 or 40 pounds in a very short period of time. Uh, and yet the first night at her house, she made me dinner. And I said to her, Tracy, I, I haven't eaten solid food in a while. I'm not going to be able to eat this. I'm sorry. And I was kind of embarrassed that nobody had told her what a mess I had become. And she said, well, we're going to say a blessing over our food. And then you're going to eat what you can. And if you can't eat anything, it's okay. And she did. She said a blessing over our food. And, and then she just chatted about how we'd go on her. She lived way, way out in the country. And she said how we would go out, out on her back deck after the sunset. And we would look at the stars. And she would point out the constellations. And that we would talk about happy memories. And that she would just stay right with me. And, you know, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in that, I ended up eating half that meal. And she looked, after I had eaten, she looked at me and she said, 
this is going very well and things are going to start getting better now. (laughs) And I just couldn't even believe it. But I lived with her for four months. And I don't know, it sounds crazy to let somebody as messed up as me into your home for four months. But I know without her, I would, I would not have survived. But she was strong enough, spiritually strong enough to stay at the edges of the quicksand, you know, and pull me out and smart enough to not get into the quicksand with me. She was just a life, I can't even say a lifesaver, so much more than that. She worked a, a ghastly job with dreadful hours. And she said she would come home at night and she would walk into my bedroom and I would be in the bed asleep, but I would be thrashing, I would be moaning, I would be crying in my sleep, I'd be flopping about, looking and sounding miserable. And she would stand at the foot of the bed and she would pray for me. And she said, after I prayed for you, the thrashing and the moaning and the crying would stop and you would settle into a peaceful sleep. And, and that's huge. That's huge. I know people tend to be dismissive of prayer, and they shouldn't be because those kind of things are what saved me. What an amazing friend, a wise and amazing friend. Oh, she is. And it went on that way for four months. And every night I would, she would say, would you like to come back tonight? There was never a point at which she said, okay, you're going to stay here for a while. And, you know, I, I have been on television, you know, with my books. I mean, I was on PBS History Detectives, the second episode they had. I've been on Sunday Morning News and A&E's Biography. I mean, I had a good run with my books on architectural history. And, and then I married this fancy man. There came a point at which I developed a, a skin condition because I couldn't take a shower. <laughs> I stopped bathing. I stopped bathing because when I stood in the shower, all I would do is cry. And so, one of my friends noticed I had this skin condition and my friend said, when was the last time you took a shower or a bath? And I said, I don't know. And Tracy said, okay, first they they got me some stuff, some medical stuff to treat this condition. But then Tracy would march me to the shower every two days (laughs) and say, I'm standing right here. If you cry in the shower, it's okay. I'm going to pray for you and it's going to be all right, but you've got to take a shower. We can't do this. We can't have your skin getting infected like this. So uh, that's how far I had fallen. I mean, I was sleeping in my car when Tracy intervened. Now, did Tracy have anything magical to say? Any super words of wisdom that fixed anything? Oh, man, did she? Okay, Tracy, I consider her my... <laughs> I'm actually having breakfast with her in a couple of days. I'm, I'm out of town visiting here on the East Coast to, to just hang out with my peeps but because I'm living in the Midwest now. But Tracy would talk to me every night and she would talk to me every morning because I would go around saying... I would go around saying... He's dead because of me. He's dead because I was a bad wife. The last conversation I had with him was an argument, which he started. I mean, he called me. He started an argument. It was a jugular issue. It went bad. And then he hung up on me, and he did this thing. And I've, I've since learned that that's so common. It's like they have to get, they have to get oh, what's the word, angry enough and, and feel just bad enough to go through with this horrible, horrible act. But I had such guilt. I'm prone to guilt anyway. My gosh, am I prone to guilt? So this this had messed me up in the head so badly. And Tracy used to tell me, she used to say, this isn't your fault. And I would say, Tracy, 
I know you're a woman of God. I know you're a spiritual warrior, but you're wrong. And you shouldn't lie to me like that. This is obviously my fault. And I said, I have to live with what I've done for the rest of my days. And I should suffer for what I've done. I mean, I was messed up. And Tracy would say, and another friend told me this too. And I wrote it down. I used to, people would think it was funny, but I carried around a little notebook, like a little six by nine spiral notebook. And when they would say something profound, I would write it in my notebook because my memory went away. I built a career on my phenomenal memory. That's how I ended up on these shows. That's why my book was successful. I have this quirky Asperger flavored memory of that, that is just crazy. And yet I couldn't, I lost the ability to read during this time. I actually lost the ability to read. I could read the words, but I could not comprehend anything. So one of the things Tracy told me, she said, there's nothing you could have done to stop this. And she said, and there's nothing you could have done to make this happen. You just weren't that important to him. And I thought, boy, she's right. And it took a long time for that to sink in. And then the other thing she said, and this was true. I prayed for this man every morning and every evening of my life. I literally, on my knees, would ask God to send his angels to watch over him and keep him safe. I, I When I hugged him, I would visualize uh, a river of light just flowing through him, purifying him of anything unlike God. I would ask God to keep him safe and bring him home to me at the end of every day. And Tracy said, she said, you did everything right. And she said, were it not for what was wrong with him, he probably would have lived to be an old man and he probably lived longer than he would have if you hadn't been praying for him. But the big thing she said, and this was huge, she said, I don't know. I don't know how, how this is going to work, but I know, she said, God has put it on my heart that you're going to end up telling this story from a position of victory, and it's going to be a story that blesses and inspires people. And she said, and you're going to be telling the story to millions of people. And I said, Tracy... <laughs> I can't even imagine telling this story from a position of victory because I'm circling the drain. What are you talking about? But yeah, she was so gentle and so loving and also firm. She was just an amazing woman to step into my life. And after my four months with her, um, a friend, another friend emerged and I shared a home with him and he was more like a mother than any man I've ever known in my life. And he took care of me. And I had a little dog. I had neglected the little dog. And this friend, in the book I call him Effie because I want to protect his privacy, but my friend Effie took care of my little dog when I wasn't able to, and then he took care of me. So he and I shared a home, and he would literally follow me around at night with a plate of food. He would make dinner every night, and he would follow me around with a plate of food, and he'd say, please just take one bite. Just take, you haven't eaten today, just take one bite. And that's, um, you know, my whole life I'd struggled with being a little bit fluffy. So it was pretty interesting to have somebody saying, please eat. And then there were so many helpers that came into the picture and saved me. And I guess, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book one of the reasons, there's so many reasons not to kill yourself, and I am saying this with, with all the gravitas it deserves. One is you're going to create a hell of a mess that all the good Samaritans of the world have to rush in and save the person 
uh, Red Reddington, uh, the Blacklist, the NBC show that he's in, he, I thought this was the best analogy I'd ever heard. He compares suicide to a suicide bomber who straps on a vest full of explosives. And in the analogy, he says, those closest to the blast are destroyed. And the people in the outer rings, they suffer damage. And the further outer rings, they're hurt. But those closest are just destroyed. And that's right. The other reason, if you want to think of a reason not to end your life, my dog, my dog who made it to 13, she was eight years old. He did this in front of her. She tried to lick him back to life. And the neighbors had to pull her off of him. And they had to cut out bits of her fur for obvious reasons. And that dog was never the same again. She was touched by this in a bad way. I, I just, I, you know, and, and then number three reason, there's a lot of them. Number three, suicide is a death like no other. And one of the reasons is the cops look to the surviving spouse as the primary suspect in what they consider to be a homicide investigation. So in my case, it was my husband chose a gun and I got questioned by the cops as a lead suspect. So that's another reason. And I've had widows, God bless them, widows say, oh, I know it's really hard to lose a spouse. They have no clue. Yeah. He did not fade from this world in a hospital bed. I got questioned by the cops. My children, my adult children got questioned by the cops. A neighbor got questioned by the cops. It's, it's just, and, and then I know of too many cases where somebody loses a spouse or a child to suicide and they're never the same again. They are just messed up so bad by it. And like I was talking about at the beginning, I can't remember if you and I were talking about this before we started the podcast, but known suicide survivors, which is what we're called, people who've survived the suicide of a, a close loved one are 12 to 48 times more likely than the average population to end our life. It's because it's too much. We get ostracized. We don't have people bringing us casseroles. We get ostracized. We get talked about. We get gossiped about. So my near-death experience, the title of my book is uh, Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. It did save my life. In that white room, when they're telling me that this mist falling all around me is cleansing me, the word that was used was muck. And what I was told, I was told this so distinctly, I was told that, and I, can't, I wasn't told this distinctly, it was, it was told to me in a way that it just kind of came into my consciousness, but that what he did and all the et cetera's, all the crap from that had been encapsulated and that it couldn't hurt me anymore. And that made so much sense to me. You know, as an architectural historian, sometimes a potential contaminant, if you encapsulate it, it's a superior method of dealing with it than removal. Sometimes in the removal of a contaminant, uh, you stir up more dust to make a bigger mess. But in that white room, I, I was told if I agreed to go back, I'd be restored to wholeness. And I thought, that's good to know. Out of my way, I'm doing the door. <laughs> yeah, so, so just to refresh here. So you've been through this whole cleansing experience, but you still want to get to the store the whole time. You can see it. You know what's on the other side. It sounds like even though you have studied near-death experiences, it sounds like you're not feeling like, hey, that's what I'm having, and I'm going to go back. You feel like you're done. You're done. You're moving forward, right? Oh, right. 
that's an excellent point. Yeah, there was there was just no doubt in my mind. You know, one of the ways I know that I had no intention of going back is after I had popped out of my body, I tell people I was catapulted out of that body, and that's true. I remember one of the first things I said was, or one of the early things I said was, I like floating. Floating is fun. This is great. And <laughs> I'm a writer. You know, writers like to talk in erudite terms. We like to use sesquipedalian terms. We like big words. And here I am <laughs> saying, I like, I like floating. Floating is fun. This is great. I sound like a toddler. So yeah, I, I just, I couldn't wait to see what was coming next. I'm so grateful it was over. And you know, with the other interesting thing, and I don't want to diminish anyone's grief because grief, grief is wrenching. But when I died, it was like waking up from a very intense dream. It was like, oh, I, I thought that was so important. It turns out it was nothing. And I had been alive 58 years at this point, And it felt like that 58 years was like, like an overnight, you know? It felt so inconsequential, so unimportant. And it was such a relief. It was such a relief to be shed of all that. So yeah, I'm 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 in this room, and I I had no intention of going back. I I, I remember th- one of the thoughts I had was there isn't a tunnel, there isn't a light, there isn't a life review, and I knew that was an answer to my prayers. I thought I just felt so free, so free, and so happy, and I felt I was very happy with myself because I hadn't done this to myself. In fact, I had sought medical treatment to deal with this life threatening illness. So yeah, I'm approaching this door and I'm told if you, uh, it was told to me and I don't know the words, it was kind of conveyed to me. If you agree to go back, you'll be restored to wholeness. And it wasn't, you'll be healed of this, this, and this. It's that you'll be restored. There'll be restoration. There'll be peace. There'll be restoration is the best way I can put it. And I was like, okay, that's great. I'm doing the door. And I got to the door and I put my right hand up because the door was shut and I had to push through it. I put my right hand up to move through that door and I was pretty interested by the fact, right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who thinks of all that stuff? <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, as I did that, I stopped, I paused, and I said to the spiritual being with me, or beings, I don't even know. I said, is this the divine will for my life? And I couldn't even get past, is this the divine? And the answer was immediate. And again, it came with an infusion of knowing. And the answer was no. It's not. But whatever you decide, you go with all of God's blessings and mercy and grace and care and love. There isn't a wrong decision. And I thought, wow, there isn't a wrong decision. And I have thought of that every day since then. And it's not that, you know, if you decide to go rob a bank this afternoon, that's not a wrong decision. But when we are striving to hear God, to do what God wants us to do. I don't think we're going to make a wrong decision. And if we do, we're just, it's like a boulder in a fast moving stream. You just, you know, maybe you went to the left, you should have gone to the right, but you're going to end up in the place you need to be. But that thing of there isn't a wrong decision. Oh my gosh. Because, you know, deciding whether to go to back to earth or go on to heaven is kind of a biggie. And it was it just it was so comforting to me. So I thought, okay, if that's the deal, I want to go. I don't want to go back. Don't, I, I don't want to go back to any of that. And then, <laughs> this is so profound, but I was given, and I wasn't even given, I was like, okay, we're doing the door. And I had this image pop into my thought, except it wasn't that I had an image pop into the thought. I, I was in an ER uh, or a hospital supply room 
I was in it. I was a silent observer, a silent observer. And the nurse that had been so thoughtful and so solicitous toward me was sitting in the middle of this large supply room with linens and medical supplies, sitting on a little metal stool, head in her hands, leaning forward, sobbing uncontrollably. And I heard her say through sobs, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I lost her. Wow. And I thought, oh, come on. This isn't fair. Don't do this to me. I want to go. Yeah, that's not fair, but that's wonderful too. Well, and then, and then it gets better. But I thought, okay, she's my end. She's, she's my age. She's an RN. She's been around a while. She knows the gig. I'm sure she's lost other patients. She'll get over it. But then it wasn't just to experience this as a silent observer. I felt the agonal grief. I felt her pain, her, her deep grief at losing a patient after promising me. And, and my sense was really believing that this was not a big deal, that I was going to be fine. And I felt it. And I recognized that deep grief as the same pain I had known from after my husband's suicide. And I thought, if I can spare one person that much grief, I have to go back. And I put my right hand back down by my side. And the next thing I knew, in a millisecond, I was back in that body. And I was a little miffed. And I was lying in that same gurney, except now I'm in a new room, which was pretty interesting. And now there's all kinds of people in there. My friend who had been there, you know, when I died and when I came, well, not when I came back, he was out in the hallway. But he said they summoned everybody, even the receptionist into the room. So that room was full of people doing stuff. And as I was lying on that gurney, I had an oxygen mask on my face now. And there was an angel in the upper left-hand corner of the room. And I looked up at her and this was definitely a she, almost almost kind of a, a lighthearted, fun angel. And I said, mentally, I looked up at her and I said, the, the Robert's Rules of Order, we didn't even have a first, we didn't have a second, we hadn't even entered the discussion phase. I thought we were going to discuss this. And she just looked at me and she said, she said, hi, <laughs> you're back. I was like, wait, this, the, you know how much energy it takes to die? Do you know what a big deal this was? And she said, here you are. And people have asked me what she looked like. She just looked like a ball of light. It, 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 I can't say she was a humanist form. It was just like this being made of light up in the corner, like just barely in the room. And from there, the, um, the, uh, Oh, funny thing. This is pretty funny. So as soon as I came to, and now I've got an oxygen mask on, um, that a nurse, I don't remember who it was, but a nurse was in my face. And she said, what is your name? And I said, Rosemary. And she said, what year is it? And I said, 2018. And she said, where are you? And I said, a crummy excuse for an ER. And she, <laughs> she bristled a little bit at that last uh -huh. comment. But I had been dead for more than 10 minutes, no heartbeat. I had bled to death. And the thing, the reason that that's a significant detail in this is when you die from bleeding to death, they can't do CPR. They have to, as a, I interviewed an ER physician about this, and he said the first thing they have to do is plug the leak, refill the tank, and then restart the heart. Wow. So I had no oxygen to my brain for more than 10 minutes. And the belief is after five or six minutes, there's irrevocable brain damage. And then bringing me back, I actually talked to an anesthesiologist. I was sharing the story with him one-on-one. -on -one, and he became emotional 
very emotional. I was a grown man, retired anesthesiologist, burst into tears when I said, you know, when they asked me my name and what year is it and where are you? And I said, uh, I said, what's going on? You okay there? <laughs> and he said, you probably don't understand how relieved they were when they figured out they'd done the right thing in bringing you back. Wow, that's... Uh... That's heavy, because in other words, what if they had brought you back and your brain wasn't working at all, right? Right, or I was in a, a bad state. And from there, I was rushed by ambulance to a real hospital, a trauma center, and something very gratifying. Um, the next morning, I got a doctor with some stature and some maturity, and he was very kind, and he sat down at the edge of the hospital bed, and he said, uh, Mrs. Thornton, last night, your heart stopped. And he said, and I said, why? And he said, you lost, oh, actually, what he said was you had a heart attack. And your heart, he said, your heart went into V-fib, which is where it just kind of quivers. And he said, and then it stopped. And I said, why? And he said, well, you lost so much blood that there was just nothing, you know, the heart's a pump. If there's nothing to pump, it's not going to do anything except kind of throw up its hands and say, ah! And um, I said, how do you know I had a heart attack? And he said, because you're enzymes are way elevated in your blood. He said, but they've already started to come back down this morning. So that tells us that it was a heart attack and not underlying heart disease. And they, uh, they whisked me off uh, for a lot of tests, but one of them was they want to check my heart because the doctor said, based on these elevated enzymes, I had sustained significant damage to my heart. <laughs> and as they're going down the hallway, I said, you know what, y'all, y'all don't need, need to do these tests. The angels told me if I agreed to come back, I'd be fine, fine, fine. And, and at every point in turn, they did a lot of tests because 58-year-old woman bleeding to death, there, there can be some issues. They were concerned about clots. Apparently, when you bleed to death, you, there's a lot of concerns about little itty-bitty blood clots forming. That never happened. Uh, but at every point in turn, I said, we don't need to do this test, and they did them anyway, and they were all very pleased. And it took about two months before I could even have a subsequent oncologist because it turns out when you go back to the first oncologist and say guess what we don't need the chemo we don't need the radi radiation i was healed in heaven they go uh huh. sure right <laughs> he wouldn't even he would not do another biopsy he refused so i had to find another oncologist in another part of the state and that oncologist did do a second surgical biopsy and she wanted to give me some time to heal too but she she actually uh my friend again, Effie, was waiting for me in the waiting room after that second surgical biopsy. And she actually came out of that surgical room and into the waiting room and threw her arms around his neck and said, she's right. There is not one cell of cancer left in her body. And she said, in fact, her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect. I wouldn't believe she ever had cancer were it not for the previous test. So that was a pretty big deal. But, and as I say in my book, and I say in, you know, when I tell this story, the real healing, the big healing was the healing of my soul. When I got home, I was, cause I was in the hospital a few days. And when I was back home and I had to have 24 hour care, I flopped open my Bible and it opened to Psalm 23. And it's like this one verse was literally illuminated, like the light of, I don't know, it just had a light on it. And the, the verse was, he restoreth my soul. And when I read that, I started to cry because I thought the healing of the body is certainly important. And I don't discount or diminish that in any way. But the real healing was that my soul got healed. My soul got restored.
And there were so many things that happened after this. And I try to tell the story as quickly as possible. Somebody once asked me if I do the, the financing for used car ads because I talk so fast. But one of the PSs to this, and there were a lot, I realized the happiest I had ever known in my 58 years on earth was that time floating away from my body or being in the white room. And during that time, I had no possessions. And I gave myself permission to sell everything I had. In fact, it felt like the right thing to do. I sold off my personal possessions. I had an amazing collection of ephemera from my research on these nine books. I donated the majority of that to a local university college or a college library, university library. And then I, uh, I mean, I was selling lamps and chairs and end tables and patio furniture and bedspreads and I had some pretty cool vintage stuff. I sold it all. And then after it was all sold, I put my house on the market. And in two hours, somebody knocked on the door and said they'd buy it. And then I sold my car. I had a fancy uh, fancy V6 Camry that I had waited some time to get my hands on. I sold that back to the dealership. And my daughter told me something very helpful. I felt kind of foolish. This was my dream car. It had a panoramic roof, white leather interior, V, uh, V6 with an eight-speed transmission, zero to 16, 5.8 seconds. I'm a car person. And my daughter said, Mom, the woman who bought that car is dead. She said, you're a new person. You don't need that car. I bought a slightly used Prius, which served me well. And I moved a 1,000 miles due west to start a new life. And one of the reasons I did this and that's where I live now in the Midwest is because and people laugh, but it's the truth. I like watching things grow. I like watching corn grow and I like watching soybeans grow. And I like looking out at these expansive farms we have in the Midwest with a roly poly terrain caused by the, the bluffs and just watching the storms, thunderstorms come in from 20 miles on the plains. You can see them rolling in. I crave beauty. I just crave God's beauty with everything that is within me. And the Midwest is a beautiful place. And the people are so gentle and good and decent. I just have seen so much goodness in people in the Midwest. So that was a pretty big life change to sell everything you own and move and start a new life. And yet, I'm glad I did. It's been hard. I still have anxiety. I still panic sometimes. I still... I still have my struggles, but it's, it's a very different thing. When I think about my husband, I'm sad, but I'm not destroyed by the grief. I don't blame myself anymore. And that, boy, is that liberating. And I forgave him. Ultimately, I was able to forgive him as well. And that was a huge deal, too. You just answered my last questions, which were, as far as the healing of your soul, did you come back with, with the grief healed, with the guilt healed, and then, and then I was actually going to ask about your forgiving him. Do you want to elaborate on those? I do. Uh, I think sometimes people are pushed to forgive, saying if you really want to be healed, you have to forgive. I think forgiveness has to come at our own speed. And I'm not sure we have to forgive to heal. I think what we have to do is we have to let go. I had been so burdened with grief, so burdened with guilt. You know, the... <laughs> In the Bible, it says the serpent beguiled Eve. The word beguiled and the word guilt have the same etymology, and they both mean to deceive. It wasn't my fault that he ended his life. 
That was just another deception. That was a trick. And boy, did it mess me up. I think it's Deuteronomy 2.3 said, you've circled the mountain long enough, time to stop and go north. I had been caught in these endless ruminations of why did he do this? I thought he loved me. I guess it's my fault. Why did he do this? I thought he loved me. I guess it was my fault. I couldn't get out of that. And the thing about coming back, I mean, I was still lying in this hospital bed and I thought, those are the wrong questions. I'm stuck in this merry-go-round. That's, that's not where I need to be. And, and one of the things that came to me, I felt so much guilt. I can't define how much guilt I felt about the fact that he'd been an agnostic and I had been a good Christian girl or so I thought, and I thought it was my duty to show him, to teach him that God is a, is real and that death, death is not the end of life. He believed when you kill yourself, it's lights out. And I felt so much guilt about that, that I had failed. I mean, where do you go when you fail God? I felt like he had been my special mission and I had failed. I had failed catastrophically. And that was part of my angst. And one of the things that I was told after I came back, I'm lying in this hospital bed and felt still like I was 95% in heaven. I was told you were to be a sheep. You weren't to be a shepherd. And secondly, we're to work out our own salvation. I was trying to work out his salvation. And when I let that go, oh my gosh, it was like somebody threw open the prison doors and said, look, you can leave anytime you want. Now it's your decision if you want to stay here. I was like, hell no, I don't want to stay there. And I was able to just say, God, he's all yours. I I release him. I let him go. And there's still times when I go back to think, oh my gosh, what did I do? Did I do this? I think, nope, nope, nope. This, This has been encapsulated. You know, all the, and the way the angels explained it to me was all the muck of that mess. And boy, there was a lot of mess that went with that suicide. All the muck of that has been encapsulated and it can't leach, it can't leak out, and it can't hurt me ever again. It's gone. And, and that was huge. So it was seeing it, it was, it was just like waking up and seeing this isn't on me. You know, I'm responsible for me. I'm responsible to be a shining light, to, to, to just love, to be loved, to show love, to give love, to show what God's love looks like on earth. That's my job. It's not my job to talk somebody else into heaven. And that was, I just can't tell you how liberating that was. So, I, I, one, I think this, I do believe that these NDEs are tailor-made to every individual. I think that I could have gone on. I really do think that was an option. And I think that uh, I, I, I think that God was saying it's better to go back. It's better to go back. And I, I still have my days where I think I'm not having a good day. I'm having a really crummy day. I'm not sure that I made the right choice. But it is immensely gratifying that I get a lot of emails now from people who say, thank you. This has been a blessing for me. This has helped me. This has helped me understand that life goes on. This has helped me understand that God is real. This has helped me understand that life is eternal. So if that's the reason I came back, and also my dog, my dog lived another three years after I came back, and I have three adult children. So there, there were good reasons to come back. That's awesome. I really appreciate your story. This has been very uplifting and the healing aspect of it is amazing. What you've been through is so hard. The grief, I can't even imagine. And then when you add the guilt to it, it just uh, it just must be have been so overwhelming. Anyway, do you have any one last message that you would like to leave people? What should be the number one little takeaway here? If you have... If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, 
find a path out of that. It's a trick. It's a dirty trick. And there's a research is showing that once you overcome our biological hardwiring to think about ending your own life, it, it becomes like a rut and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So if you're having any suicidal ideations, find a path out of it because it is a dirty trick. It is a deception and it is nothing good in it. Nothing good in suicide. And what is the suicide hotline number? It's 988. Thank you. Rosemary, thank you so much for being with us today. And um, again, if anybody wants to hear more of her story, they can check out the book. It'll be in the show notes. And thanks again. If you have had a round-trip death experience, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you have found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, hit that follow button, and take a few seconds to write us a review. Until next time, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Music